To the angel of the church in Ephesus write, These are the words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand and walks among the seven golden lampstands. I know your deeds, your hard work, and your perseverance. I know that you cannot tolerate wicked people and that you have tested those who claim to be apostles but are not and have found them false. You have persevered and have endured hardships for my name and have not grown weary. Yet I hold this against you. You have forsaken the love you had at first. Consider how far you have fallen. Repent and do the things you did at first. If you do not repent, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place. But you have this in your favor. You hate the practices of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. Whoever has ears, let them hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who is victorious, I will give the right to eat from the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. Open your Bibles with me this morning to Revelation chapter 1. Revelation chapter 1. Now, as soon as I said the word revelation, some of you in this room got scared. And some of you in this room got a little bit excited, didn't you? That's right. Because revelation has a reputation. One ancient church father says that revelation has as many mysteries as it does words. And that's true. Because this book is just chock full of symbols that can frankly be confusing Uh, There's candles and trumpets and bowls and blood and beasts and a dragon and a prostitute and a new city coming down out of the sky. What's the deal? I mean, Revelation has a reputation. And lots of people look at this book at the back of their Bibles, Revelation, as kind of the end of the world for dummies type thing, a roadmap for the end times. And that's part of the reason the Revelation scares us, because it's confusing and, to be honest, it's been abused a lot. Uh, Several decades ago, back in the dark ages of the 1980s, um, (laughs) a man named Edgar Wisenhunt used several prophecies in Revelation to write a popular book called 88 Reasons Why Jesus Will Return Again in 1988. (laughs) Wonder how that worked out. Okay. But Revelation isn't meant to cause us to speculate with elaborate flowcharts and diagrams and timelines. It's not meant to be some jigsaw puzzle of divine judgment. It's not some kind of Rubik's Cube so that if we twist it and turn it just the right way, we can figure out exactly what's going to happen. No. I heard a true story once of a preacher in Ohio, a young guy, and he was uh, teaching through Revelation. And when he got finished, somebody shot him. Not making this up. And so when I found out several months ago that Steve and Tim had planned this series, my thought was, man, I'm 23 years old. (laughs) I'm too young to die. (laughs) Can't we just like, you know, preach through one of Paul's letters or the Psalms or something? But in reality, I'm really looking forward to spending the next seven weeks in Revelation with you guys. And we're going to look at what Jesus has to say in chapters two and three, because Revelation is meant to reveal things to us. It's what the word means, revelation. It is a revealing, an uncovering, an unveiling. Revelation is a book that's meant to help us see. Well, see what, you might ask. It's not a crystal ball so that we can see the future, but it does help us to see God's sovereignty over the unfolding of human history and that we win in the end. If it's not some kind of rubric to help us determine which presidential candidate is the Antichrist, but it does help us to see the world and our lives from heaven's perspective. But first and foremost, Revelation is meant to help us see Jesus. 
And just like verse one, Revelation chapter one, verse one, this is the revelation of Jesus Christ. That word of there really can mean two things. It's the revelation of Jesus, meaning this is the revelation from Jesus, but it's also revealing Jesus. When we read Revelation, we should see Jesus more clearly. But before we dive into this letter, I wanna look at three short things here real quick to help us determine and interpret this letter. You have to know three things. First of all, we have to know who this letter is from. We have to know who this letter is through. And we have to know who this letter is to. First of all, like we just said, this letter is from Jesus. This is the revelation from Jesus Christ. But he's sending it through kind of a fourfold chain of communication. Uh, Jesus gives this, these words to an angel the angel passes these words along to the apostle John. He's the one who writes it down for us. He actually writes it down to send it to the seven churches. So the revelation is from Jesus through the apostle John. And now John is one of the 12 disciples and he writes it down to send it to these seven churches in Asia Minor, which is modern day Turkey. So keep in mind, these letters were not originally written for us. We're reading somebody else's mail here. Those seven churches are the original audience, but it's coming through John, the apostle John. One of the 12 disciples, he knew Jesus very well. They ate, they slept, they walked, they worked together. Uh, he was known as the disciple that Jesus loved. He wrote the gospel of John that we read. He wrote the letters, first, second, and third John. But by now, when he's writing Revelation, he's an old man. It's been about 60 years since Jesus resurrected and ascended back up into heaven. All the other disciples have been killed for their faith. He's the last of the 12, and he's in exile on the island of Patmos because he was teaching about Jesus. Here's what he writes in Revelation chapter 1, verses 9 through 11. He says, I, John, your brother and companion, in the suffering and kingdom and patient endurance that are ours in Jesus, was on the island of Patmos, because of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. On the Lord's day, I was in the spirit, and I heard behind me a loud voice like a trumpet, which said, write on a scroll what you see and send it to the seven churches, to Ephesus, Smyrna, Pergamum, Thyatira, Sardis, Philadelphia, and Laodicea. So John writes this message that he receives down to send it to the seven churches. I think we have a map up here on the screen. And if you'll look, down there in the bottom left corner of the picture is the island of Patmos. That's the prison island where John is in exile. So he writes this letter from Jesus down and it goes across the sea and he actually writes these letters to the seven churches in the order that a messenger would take them. You could see the kind of road there that the messenger would walk along to deliver these messages to the churches. And each one of these seven churches is unique. Some are rich. Some are poor, some have internal problems, some have external problems, some have both. <laughs> but no church is without difficulty. And that's still true today. There's no such thing as a perfect church. This church would be perfect if it weren't for you people <laughs> and me. <laughs> And these churches are messed up. These seven churches, I mean, they've got sexual immorality, false teaching, greed, spiritual complacency, you name it, they've got it. Oftentimes we hear people say things like, you know, I just wanna restore the New Testament church. I wanna get back to the way they did it in the first century, back in Bible times, let's do it like that. Well, congratulations, guys, we did it. <laughs> They're messed up and so are we. 
And a lot of people look at how messed up the church is and they'll say things like, well, I love Jesus, but man, I can't stand those church people. I, you know, they're hypocritical, I've been burned. I love Jesus, I just don't like the church that much. Well, scripture says that the church is the bride of Christ. So how much do you think Jesus is gonna like it if you go up to him and say, hey, Jesus, I love you, you rock, but man, your wife is ugly. It's not gonna go over too well. You can't have Jesus apart from his church. It's a package deal. But Jesus isn't naive. He also sees his church, his bride, for who she is. He sees all of our imperfections and impurities and inadequacies, but he loves his bride, warts and all. You know, if you love someone, you speak the truth to them. I have a test that I use to determine who my true friends are. If I get done hanging out with somebody and I go back and look in the mirror and there's something stuck in my teeth for the whole world to see, that person is not my true friend, okay? A true friend tells you when you have something stuck in your teeth. And Jesus loves his church. He loves us. He loves his bride enough to tell her the hard truth. He says, I love you, but if you're gonna make it, you're gonna need a little bit of a facelift. And he does it lovingly, He does it with a love letter, actually. There's something intimate and personal about a letter, isn't there? It's more personal than an email or a text. And this letter that we're gonna read today is personal. It's pastoral. It's written to real people in a real place, in real time, with real lives. This letter was written during the mid-90s AD. And these seven churches are facing two major challenges. The first one is to endure persecution because it's now legal for the Romans to arrest, imprison, and even execute Christians. Christians have become a thorn in the side of Roman society, so the cultural hammer is about to come down on them. So the first challenge is to endure persecution. But the second challenge is this, to resist cultural seduction because it would have been much easier for these Christians to just blend into the world around them and avoid the persecution. I mean, they could have said a few words, they could have sprinkled some incense on a pagan altar and been just fine. They could have slept around a little, gone to an idol shrine with, for dinner with friends. You know, it, it would have been comfortable, easy, and safe. So John is writing to them to remind them of the danger of giving in. Resist cultural seduction and endure persecution. And each of these seven letters that we're gonna explore in the next couple months uses a similar format. Let's look at the pattern here that they use. Each one of them begins, to the angel of the church in blank. A little bit of a weird way to start the letter, but we don't exactly know what this means. The word angel literally means messenger, so maybe this is just saying to the elder who's in charge of this church, who's gonna pass it along to the people in the church. Or maybe it could be literally addressed to a real spiritual angel who's watching over and guarding and protecting the church. We don't know, but we do know that these words are from Jesus to the church. It says, these are the words of blank. They're all from Jesus, but in each letter, Jesus describes himself a little bit differently to meet exactly what that church needs. And then Jesus says, I know, says, I know what you're up to. And he praises the church and then he gives the problem with the church. So for every church, he tells what's good about them and what's bad about them, except He doesn't have anything good to say to two of the churches and he doesn't have anything bad to say to two of the churches. And then he ends by saying, whoever has ears, let them hear. And then he gives us a promise to him who overcomes blank. 
And we get this promise of heaven in each of the letters. It's really, it's really neat. So without further ado, let's go ahead and dive into the first letter, Revelation chapter two, verse one. To the angel of the church in Ephesus, write, these are the words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand and walks among the seven golden lampstands. Pause. What's the deal with the lampstands? Now flip back to chapter one, we're gonna find out. We have to look back at this vision that John had. Look at verse 12 in chapter one. John writes, I turned around to see the voice that was speaking to me. And when I turned, I saw seven golden lampstands. And among the lampstands was someone like a son of man. You might remember that son of man was Jesus's favorite title for himself. Look at verse 20. The seven stars are the angels of the seven churches and the seven lampstands are the seven churches. So this vision of Jesus is Jesus walking among the lampstands, literally walking among the churches. You may notice here that we have seven lamps up on this uh, stage for this series. And to this specific church, the church in Ephesus, he's writing to remind them, hey, I'm among you, I am with you. The city of Ephesus was one of the leading cities in the Roman world during the first century. It was like the equivalent of Los Angeles, like not quite the top dog, but pretty close, okay? And Ephesus had a population of roughly 250,000 people at this point, big place. And in this city, there's a group of Christians, a church. They don't necessarily all meet together. Uh, They likely met in homes. They didn't have a building or in open spaces, but this church is a historic church nonetheless. They have lots of big name people in this church, people that you'd recognize. The apostle Paul The guy who wrote so many letters in the New Testament was the first leader of this church. Then his protege, Timothy. And then John the Apostle was an elder at this church. They had the famous husband and wife teaching duo of Priscilla and Aquila. They had the dynamic preacher, Apollos. Tradition even says that Mary, the mother of Jesus, ended up in Ephesus and was buried there. Pretty pretty A-list people there here at Ephesus. And we also see this church at Ephesus mentioned throughout the pages of Scripture you'll recognize that the book of Ephesians was written to this church. And the books of 1st and 2nd Timothy and 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John also have to do with this church in Ephesus. So this church has a rockin' history. They've got a rockin' church staff. Now, don't get me wrong. I love our church staff here, but we've got nothing on what Ephesus had, okay? We read scripture. Their preacher, Paul, wrote scripture, okay? Uh, If Steve or I tell you, well, Jesus said, we're probably reading it to you from the gospels. But when their preacher John said, Jesus said, he was like, oh yeah, I remember that one time Jesus and I were walking together and he happened to mention, wow, okay, they've got an A-list staff. This is varsity level here. And yet, this vision of Jesus reminds us that he's the one who's in charge. He's the one who's actively involved with his church, intimately aware with the affairs of the people of his church as he walks among the lampstands. They had many famous pastors, but we don't worship a pastor. We worship Jesus Christ. He's the one who's really in charge. And as he walks among the churches, it's comforting to know that his presence is here right now. But he's also doing an inspection. Here's what he says. He starts off with some praise for the church. He praises the church. Verses two and three and verse six. He says, I know your deeds, your hard work and your perseverance. I know that you cannot tolerate wicked people, that you've tested those who claim to be apostles but are not and have found them false. You've persevered and have endured hardships for my name and have not grown weary. And you have this in your favor. You hate the practices of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. 
You know, when a child hears their parents say, I know what you've done, it's not normally a good sign. But right here, it is. Jesus is saying, hey, I know how good you guys are in the midst of a bad place. You see, Ephesus was a notoriously evil city. The patron goddess of the city of Ephesus was this goddess named Artemis. She was the goddess of fertility, so you can imagine what happened there. And in Ephesus, they had this massive temple, one of the seven wonders of the ancient world, the Temple of Artemis. It was four times bigger than the Parthenon, which is that temple that's in Athens today. This thing was magnificent. But in that temple, there was an asylum for criminals. So this place was a criminal hotbed, and also at that temple, hundreds of cult prostitutes practiced their trade. This was an evil place. And yet even in the midst of this pagan culture, Jesus says, the church has stayed true. He praises them, first of all, for their diligence. Their diligence. They have endured and worked hard and persevered. They've not caved in to the pagan culture And because of it, they've likely been shunned from social groups. They've suffered economic oppression. They've undergone blatant discrimination, maybe even physical persecution. But still, they have been diligent. And Jesus sees us as a church. And I bet one of the things he might say, I bet he might praise you for your diligence. PCC has been here since 1829. And a lot of those years were hard years, I bet. But the people here have stayed faithful and diligent day in and day out. Well done. Jesus also commends the church for their doctrine, secondly. This church has tested the claims that people have made. And they have rejected those claims that were false. They put in the hard work to develop sound theology and doctrinal discernment and a love for the truth. And I want Jesus to say that to us as well. Each of us should be so grounded in the truth of scripture that when we hear something false, a little Bible alarm should go off in our head because we don't live based on other people's opinions. We live based on the word of God. I don't even want you to take my word for it. I don't want you to just assume that what I'm saying is correct because it's in a sermon. Double check me against the Bible. I want everything that we say to be based on scripture. Lies should be scared to come into this room. And thirdly, Jesus commends them for their discipline. When Paul was leaving his friends from Ephesus for the last time, he said to them, he said in Acts chapter 20, I know that after I leave, savage wolves will come in among you and will not spare the flock. Even from your own number, men will arise and distort the truth in order to draw away disciples after them. So be on your guard. Sure enough, just like Paul said, those wolves did come into the church, but the church was disciplined enough to reject them. They did not tolerate evil. They did not tolerate lies. They did not tolerate worldly ideas infiltrating God's house. They were disciplined. May we be that disciplined as well. That's Jesus' praise for the church, but the letter doesn't end there. Jesus sees a problem in the church. He has more to say, verses four and five. Yet I hold this against you. You have forsaken the love you had at first. Consider how far you've fallen. Repent and do the things you did at first. If you do not repent, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place. In other words, Jesus looks at the church. He says, you guys are good at truth, but you're bad at love. 
Jesus doesn't want people who just work hard for him or people who just believe that he exists. Jesus wants people to be in love with him. So are you really in love with Jesus? Paul writes in 1 Corinthians chapter 13, if I speak in the tongues of men or of angels but do not have love, I'm only a resounding gong or a clanging cymbal. If I have the gift of prophecy and can fathom all mysteries and all knowledge, if I have a faith that can move mountains but do not have love, I'm nothing. If I give all I possess to the poor and give over my body to hardship that I may boast but do not have love, I gain nothing. If you remember the graphic from this sermon, it's kind of in the background there. You may be able to see it. The image is of a heart monitor because this church in Ephesus is suffering from heart disease. They hated all the right things. They hated sinful deeds. They hated false teaching. They got their hatred right, but they got their love wrong. They were zealous and on fire for doctrinal purity, but so were the Pharisees. You see, Christianity is not just about thinking the right things. It's about love, loving God, and as a result, loving God's people. Jesus is saying, he's saying, hey, look at you guys. I mean, your ministry is thriving. Your statement of faith is great. You have a strong history, great pastors and leaders. You work hard to overcome all kinds of obstacles to do my will. You're engaging the culture. You're passionate about families. You have a great children's ministry. The worship is great. The preaching is solid. You guys are committed to being here week in and week out. But where's the love? I I mean, I see a lot of stuff going on around, but where am I in it? What good is all this if you don't really, truly love me? It's shocking because Jesus doesn't say there's any kind of horrific sin or hidden scandal in this church, and yet he says he's about to take away their light. They're about to go kaput. Why? A lack of love. You lose your love, you lose your light, Jesus says. And some of you in here, you may love coming to church, You may love serving. You may love doing ministry. You may love the people that you get to see when you come here. You may love the Bible. You may love the organization and the daily rhythms of our faith. But if you do not love Jesus, what's the point? How does this happen? How do we stop loving Jesus first? Well, if the church is the bride of Jesus, then I think it happens to the church like it happens in a lot of marriages. You start to take your spouse for granted. Conversation stops being mushy-gushy and it turns into business talk. Picking up the kids, changing the oil, adding milk to the grocery list. And one day, you look at your spouse and you say, what happened to us? I hardly see you anymore. And when I do, your mind is somewhere else. What What happened to the passion? Where's the love? And maybe for some of you, that's what's happening right now between you and Jesus. Are you really in love with Jesus? Oh, sure, you may come to church and you may still be faithful at reading your Bible and praying, and that's great. But Steve said in his sermon this morning, you can have doctrine that's as straight as a gun barrel and just as cold. 
Where's the fire? Where's the love? And I'm not saying your relationship with Jesus has to be this crazy emotional experience every day. It doesn't. But if there's no emotion, if there's no love, then what's it built on? Maybe your heart is empty. Maybe your relationship with Jesus has become more about what needs done and less about just delighting in who he is. Maybe you need your relationship with him refreshed. Are we a church that loves Jesus? If a person walked into this room, would they be able to say, man, those people just are wild about this Jesus guy? Or is it kind of cold, ritualistic? Are we a church that loves Jesus first? Because church, we can have the best building and the most relevant music and the most engaging preaching and the most exciting kids program and the most friendly community and the most generous missions program. But even if we have all that, we stand zero chance for surviving and thriving without daily zealous love for Jesus Christ first and foremost. That's Jesus's problem in the church. But thankfully, Jesus hasn't given up on us. He's not given up on the church He praises the church, he shows the problem in the church, but he also gives a prescription for the church, how to make things right and rekindle the love that they once had. Read with me again, verses four and five. He says, yet I hold this against you. You've forsaken the love you had at first. Consider how far you've fallen. Repent and do the things you did at first. If you do not repent, I'll come to you and remove your lampstand from its place. So the first thing he does is he says, remember, remember how far you've fallen, remember. Do you remember what it was like when you first fell in love? For me, it happened at Bible college. And it doesn't take long after you arrive at Bible college for the whole place to start looking like Noah's Ark. Everybody's paired up walking around two by two. (laughs) And I was a lowly, immature, long-haired, wild-eyed sophomore and Rebecca Moyers was the hot senior girl that all my friends had a crush on. Oh man, she was smart and pretty and kind and funny and talented. She was living proof of the goodness of God. And if you ask her right now, even to this day, she'll deny it, she'll swear it's not true, but it is true. She was the big fish on campus. She was the girl that everybody wanted and nobody could get. But I had my eye on her. I wanted to get to know this girl. And so... February of 2014, I saw my opportunity and I moved in for the kill. This girl deserved a knight in shining armor. So I decided to swoop in and grab her before she could find one. (laughs) I found out that this Rebecca girl really liked Dr. Pepper. So I happened to order an extra one at Sonic and leave it on her desk. I went and threw rocks at her dorm room window. Cheesy, but hey, it worked. I, uh, I happened to arrange some get togethers with some friends that she happened to know. And lo and behold, she happened to tag along too. I watched her, I learned her rhythms. I found out when and where she walked to class and we happened to bump into each other in the hallway. You know, I made up reasons to walk by her desk where she worked in the administration building. Some people call it stalking, (laughs) but I call it strategy. (laughs) So finally, one day I corralled the butterflies in my stomach and I got up the nerve to ask this girl on a date and miraculously she said yes. So we went fishing in the creek and we didn't catch a thing, not a single fish, but I got the best catch of my life that night. So here's the point. (laughs) She's my first love. She's my first love in time. 
She's the first girl I ever held hands with. But she's also the first in priority. There is no person on the planet who comes before her. Is Jesus your first love? In order for me to love my wife well, I have to remember the things that we did at first. And we did whatever we could to spend time with each other. So Jesus is saying to the church, do you remember when you fell in love with me? Do that stuff. Am I still the first? The cool thing is we can actually look in the Bible and see when these people in Ephesus fell in love with Jesus for the first time. Acts chapter 19 is where we see the story. Paul shows up in Ephesus and there's no church but he baptizes a few people and starts doing miracles and people start telling their friends about Jesus. And it's incredible because lo and behold, look at this, look at what 19 verse 10 says. It says, this went on for two years so that all the Jews and Greeks who lived in the province of Asia heard the word of the Lord. They went from nothing to all over the place. The gospel has exploded. These people are madly in love with Jesus. Wow. I mean, the good news spread so fast that people who were making money off of sinful activities could no longer make money off of those sinful activities. The gospel had turned the entire socioeconomic climate of Ephesus on its head. Can you imagine if that happened here? If drug rings and, and strip clubs went out of business because of the church? Oh, Lord, let it be. And this church is just going gangbusters. These guys are crazy about Jesus. Miracles are happening right and left. Acts chapter 19, verses 17 through 20 says, when this became known to the Jews and Greeks living in Ephesus, they were all seized with fear and the name of the Lord Jesus was held in high honor. Of those who, uh, many of those who believed now came and openly confessed what they had done. And a number who'd practiced sorcery brought their scrolls together and burned them publicly. When they calculated the value of the scrolls, the total came to 50,000 drachmas. That's 50,000 David's wages. It would take one guy 300 years to work long enough to buy all this stuff. And they threw it away because of how much they loved Jesus. In this way, the word of the Lord spread widely and grew in power. Wow. Remember how far you've fallen. And secondly, repent. Remember and repent. If you wonder... What happened to your love for Jesus? You've probably forgotten how messed up you were when he found you. I was so terribly immature and selfish when Rebecca and I were dating. I still am a lot of days. But she loves me anyway. And I can't help but love her for that. Remember how sinful you were? Repent. Repent of those sins. That's what the Ephesians did. They threw away their scrolls. They left their sin behind and they came to Jesus. You know, sometimes we come to church and we think we have to be perfect in here. We have to wear the right clothes. We have to say the right words. Put your hands just like this when you sing. Stand now, sit now, carry this kind of Bible. Have your kids look a certain way. Put off this image. We feel like we have to clean ourselves up. But church should be a place for repentance. This should be the safest place to let our mess out and let Jesus have it. So repent. You can be messy here. He who is forgiven much loves much. Tell people your sins. Tell God your sins. Repent and turn away from him or turn away from them. Let his forgiveness lead to your love. If he's not the first thing in your life, repent and put him at the center. Remember, repent, and finally repeat. Do the things you did at first. Do you remember when you first fell in love? What'd you do? 
You remember writing letters and talking on the phone for hours on end and just sitting and watching that person or just staring googly-eyed at the picture of them in your room? What happened to that? What was it like when you first fell in love with Jesus? Were you hungry for the word? Were you serving? Were you actively and deeply involved in Christian community? Were you just starting out on your adventure of prayer? Whatever it was, do it again. Remember and rekindle that love for him. Don't get too busy for him. Don't get too business with him. Don't forget to tell him that you love him. Tell him why you love him. Are you really in love with Jesus? We're coming pretty soon to a time of communion, which is a time where we recognize God's great love for us and where we respond in love to him. And Jesus says that if we faithfully love him, there's a promise for us. Look at verse seven. Whoever has ears, let them hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who is victorious, I will give the right to eat from the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. You remember that we talked about that temple of Artemis in Ephesus, right? Well, there was another one of their gods that often appeared alongside the goddess Artemis. It was the god Nike, or Nike, which means victorious. And this god Nike was often said to have overcome, to have been victorious. So Jesus is taking these cultural images that they would have known and he's applying them to his church at an even deeper level because those gods are fake, but we really are victorious. We really do overcome because of the salvation that we have been given. In this temple of Artemis, there was a marvelous garden. And in that garden, there was a prominent tree. And it was said that that tree was where the goddess Artemis was born. So they used that tree for worship, but that tree was also a place of asylum for criminals. If you were a criminal and you ran and you, you clinged to that tree, then you were safe from all charges. You would literally receive salvation. But we know that the true tree of life was in the Garden of Eden and that we became criminals when we cut ourselves off from it through sin. But we also know that we have the promise of once again being around the tree of life in paradise, in the garden, in heaven. You'll see it if you read the end of the book, Revelation chapters 21 and 22. But we only get there by clinging to the tree on Calvary, the cross of Jesus. And because of his great love for us, we criminals receive salvation. And we remember that. And so we repent we receive his love and we can't help but respond by loving him back. And that's how we get the promise of heaven. Jesus wants us to be a church that loves him first. So are you really in love with Jesus? Let's pray. Jesus, we love you. And yet, Jesus, I confess that I don't love you as well as I should. So God, as a church, we, we want to love you and we want to love you more than we do. We want to want you. We want people to come in here and, and see our great love for you because of your great love for us. So change our hearts, redirect them, 
Remove whatever is standing in the way of us loving you first and foremost. You are all we have and we love you, Jesus. In your name we pray, amen.